0: Sammy, I'm the campus minister here, and uh, this semester we're actually taking a look at, uh, typically in the spring we like to look at something from the Old Testament, and uh, this semester we're looking at the Ten Commandments. i um, not sure if you know the Ten Commandments or if you've ever really heard them taught before, but tonight we're actually coming to the First Commandment, and the way we're kind of framing our series is we're kind of saying that if you're ever going to understand who God is, and if you're ever going to understand what community with Him looks like, and if you're ever going to understand what community, good community, flourishing community with one another looks like, we have to understand these commandments. We have to understand not only what, what God means for them to say to us, but we have to understand how they apply to our lives. And so what I want to do tonight is look at the first one. And I'm just going to read it for us. It's just really short. Um, it's very simple. It's from Exodus 20, verse 3. And the Lord simply says, first commandment, he says to his people, you shall have no other gods before me. This might be the shortest scripture reading ever in RUF. Let me pray, and then we're going to hop into it. Let's pray first. Father, we do thank you for, these, uh, for your law, for your word, for these commandments. Um, Father, I pray, even as I talk, you're the one who alone can um, speak to us in the ways that we need to hear. We thank you that you've given us your word because you care about us. You've given us these commandments because you love us. And you want not only what's best for us, but you want us to know what your heart is about, that our hearts might be about the same things. And Lord, I pray as we look at this first commandment that you would be the one that cuts us to the heart, that you would be the one that comforts us where we need to be comforted, that you would be the one that preaches the gospel maybe in a way that we've never heard before. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I've been in ministry, I guess, for eight years now, going on eight years. And one of the stories in my time that I really have come to, on the one hand, cherish, but on the other hand, be challenged by, is a story of a fellow pastor in my denomination. His name is Skip Ryan. And I tell this story because it's a very public story at this point in his life about the time he almost ruined not only his, his ministry, but he almost ruined his, his family. Skip was an incredibly successful pastor in Dallas, Texas, for a long, long time. Uh, Incredible preacher, the kind of preacher that you go and kind of get back in the day. You would get his CDs or get his tapes. Uh, Had an incredible ministry. When I was in RTS Charlotte, which is where I went to seminary, um, a lot of my friends had been in his church in Dallas. And I just loved him. But it came out about four years ago, pretty publicly, that Skip, even though he was a pastor and and a great pastor, that he had been wrestling kind of secretly with a pain pill addiction. And kind of the way it came out was uh, some of his elders, I think the story goes, kind of had just discovered his erratic sort of behavior. And he finally sort of went to his, his session and kind of said, this is something I've been struggling with. Um, he had had a surgery, I think. Typically, this is how, if you know anything about pain pill addiction, that one of the ways it starts, you have a surgery, you start taking some of these medicines, and they feel good. And, uh, and some of you can relate to that. Maybe you've had your wisdom teeth out or something like that. But for Skip, it became something that really enslaved him. And he tells him, as he kind of tells his story of how God's used that to redeem him, he's, he's actually back at his church. It's a beautiful tale of kind of redemption. He's, he's no longer the senior pastor, but he's still in staff there, and he's doing well. But in part of his story, he talks about being in counseling. And he talks about being in a, in a group counseling session for others with addictive behavior. And he says the counselor sort of was asking the question, you know, who is your God? And he, and he got to Skip, and Skip said, well, I'm a pastor. The, the, the Christian Judeo God, that is my God. Like, that's the God I've always served. That's the God that I've pastored. That's the God that I claim. And he said without blinking, the counselor looked at him dead in the eyes and said, No, no, Skip, the drugs are your God. And he said it was an epiphany for him because he realized how true that was. And, and, and he sort of shares that to say that he's not alone. He might be alone in the sense of maybe none of you at Russell with painful addiction, but that we all have, this commandment says, we all have gods other than God. We all, ha- we all have small G gods that we look to to replace or as a substitute for the big G God uh, that made us for himself. And so kind of want to do as we kind of think about what does this first commandment mean and what is God saying to us. I really want to do four things uh, pretty quickly. We'll kind of move through them. I want to ask kind of four questions about this commandment. First, what does it mean negatively? What are we not supposed to do? Second, what does it mean positively? What are we supposed to do? Third, how does Jesus fulfill and transform it? We'll talk more about what I mean by that. And then lastly, I want to talk really specifically, what does this have to do with you as a just student at South Carolina? So what does it mean negatively? What does it mean positively? How does Jesus fulfill and transform it? And then lastly, we'll talk a little bit specifically, what does it mean exactly for you and your life as a student at USC? But first thing with me, what does it mean negatively? What is God calling us not to do? And I think it's pretty simple. He's calling us not to have other gods before him. In other words, he's saying to you and me that he will not tolerate, because he loves us, because he made us for himself, that he won't tolerate small g other gods in our lives. That there's something that he, t- he takes it very seriously, that he wants He and he alone wants to be God in our lives. Um, if you think about it, if you grew up in the church at all, you know the story of Jonah. In some ways, this is what Jonah is all about. Um, you know, I think every time I think Jonah, I think of like some of the worst of Christian radio music. Like, Jonah, he was drummed drum by the big, th- I just, I don't know if you know that song, but uh, that wasn't even articulate, but you know what I'm saying. But when we talk about Jonah, sometimes we miss the point that part of what God is doing, if you know the story of Jonah, here's Jonah, and God has called him to go preach the gospel to the most hated city compared to his people, the, his enemies, people that he just, people that he would never, ever, ever want to be associated with. And if you know you know the story, Jonah runs the opposite direction. Why though? Because Jonah had made a God of his reputation. Jonah had made a God of having a certain status with his, his people, his kind of people. And so he knew, if I go preach the gospel and associate with Nineveh, it's going to kill my reputation. It's going to kill my status with these people, and so he runs the opposite direction. Why? Because he'd made a God other than God. But the beautiful thing is, God won't tolerate that in a loving way. And so God, another way saying you can't outrun God. Not like in a scary way. You know, I think sometimes when you say, hear you can't outrun God, you're like, you know. But in a beautiful way, God won't let us because he knows he alone is meant to be God in our lives. And that if we have any other God, it's going to destroy us. And so God sends the fish. And if you remember, there's a beautiful prayer. If you go back and look at Jonah, it's in Jonah 2, it's verse 8. There's this beautiful prayer where Jonah, he literally says this. as God is humbling him and bringing him back to himself. He says this, those who pay regard to vain idols, which is another word for small g gods, forsake their hope, here it is, of steadfast love. There's only one God that can give you the hope of steadfast love. And this is why God won't tolerate the other gods that you and I run to. What do I mean by gods? Luther, in a helpful way, kind of just to bring it home a little bit, what am I talking about? Here's how Luther put it. You have it in your handout. Luther talked about this idea when he's talking about it. He comes in his larger catechism to the first commandment. Here's his definition of what a god is. That up, it's really simple. That up in which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your god. And the first commandment is saying God is calling us to repent. Of the other gods that we have before Him, of the other things that we run to, of the other things that we put our hope in, the other things that we set our trust set our trust in, the other things that we look to, He's calling us to turn from them to Him. Um, David Foster Wallace is one of my heroes. I, I tried to be an English. I, I did like for those of you who've changed majors a couple times. Let me offer you some hope. I was a student here once, and I changed my major I think four times. But I, when I got here first, I tried to start in English because I loved English, or at least I thought I loved English. And I still do love English, but I just had a couple of bad professors that really killed it for me. You know, you know that, like, you're like, I think I'll do this major, and then you have like two bad classes, and you're like, I think I'm going to switch to education, and then I think I'm going to switch again to psychology. Oh, no, 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 it goes. But Foster Wallace, one of my favorite writers, uh, and he has this commencement speech, uh, and forgive me if I've shared this before, but it's so gold, he has this commencement speech that he did in Kenyon College called, it's literally just called, uh, This is Water. Now you can find it, you can Google it, it's incredible. But he comes, he's talking, to, he's talking to students who are graduating, and he's talking about this idea that we were made to worship. And this is fascinating because Foster Wallace was the furthest thing from a Christian, and yet he had incredible insight into the human heart and how we work. And he's coming to talk about this idea of that we do, we, have, we, we by definition of being a human being, have to have some kind of God. And here's what he says. It's in front of your handout if you want to read along. It's kind of long, but it's worth it. Here's what Wallace says. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body, and beauty, and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over things to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious, they're default settings. And what he's saying is, why doesn't God tolerate small g gods in our lives? Because he knows they will eat us alive. And so he calls us to turn from them. But here's the question this is what uh, Sinclair Ferguson is a pastor around here for a long time, some of you know. And he used to say that his favorite question was this How do you know what your God is? How do you know what your gods are other than God? And here's what he would say What do you think about when you're not thinking about God? And there's a good chance that if you follow that, what, do you, what, you, what does your mind naturally drift to when you're not thinking about God? And whatever it naturally drifts to typically is your God. So first, what does it mean negatively? Well, but it doesn't really have negative meaning. All the commandments have a positive meaning too. So they call us away from something, but they also call us to something. Well, what does the first commandment call us to? And here's what God calls us to, and it's actually pretty glorious. And this is one of the most glorious things about being a Christian, is that you can always trust that God will be enough for you. You can always trust God that he will not only be good to you, but he will be enough for you regardless of what happens in your life. That he himself is enough. That you don't need to run to other gods because he will fulfill you, he will provide for you, he will love you, he will be everything you need and more. That's the promise of the gospel. That God not only made you for himself, and because he made you for himself, he's the only one that can fulfill you ultimately. He can fulfill you in all kinds of ways that these other small-g gods can't. Another way of kind of thinking about it is thinking about the way King David says it in Psalm 20. It's one of the things that we've quoted a lot kind of growing up when I first became a Christian. But David says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. In other words, David is saying, listen, all the other nations, all the other nations around us, they trust what? In symbols of status, success, and power. That's what they put their trust in. That's what they put their hopes and dreams in. But he says, not so with me, not so with believers, not so with people who who know and love God. We put all our hope, we put all our eggs in the basket, all our hope eggs. This is going to sound weird, but all our success eggs, all our dream eggs, we put all of those eggs in the basket of who God is to us. And in the basket of what God has done for us, and in the basket of God and, and him being enough for us. In other words... Here's the other thing you have to know about small g gods, is even that we think, here's the lie, here's the lie that I buy, here's the lie that you buy daily, is that we run to these things, we run to these places, we run to these gods, because we think they're going to make us feel safe, secure, and successful. That's what we think. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Like, you wouldn't run to the things you run to if you didn't think they provided you something, right? Like, we're not dumb. At some level, we realize we run to these things because they give us something. And yet God is saying they can never give us what we're ultimately looking for. That's why, that's why in some ways, McJagger and Rolling Stones were the most profound theologians in the world when they're saying, we can't, I can't get no satisfaction because they knew we run to these things over and over and over, but ultimately they can't provide the satisfaction we're looking for because God alone can. But here's where it gets hard for us. Because now the question is, well, why don't we just trust God? You know, trusting God is, is, is it's simple, but if you've lived a Christian life for long enough, you know it's not at all easy. Because there are places in our lives, for, for a lot of us, where we feel like God has let us down. There are places in our lives where we can say in our hearts, God, where were you? You know, I'll never forget kind of coming out of college and reading this little book. And it wasn't the best book in the world, but it was a book by a guy named Philip Yancey. And it was called Disappointment with God. And just the title, like I didn't even need to read the book. But just the title was almost enough for me. Because what he did was he created a biblical category for me that the Psalms should have created for me if I would read them enough and what we call disappointment with God. There are places, because we're asking the question, why is it hard to trust him? Because it sounds simple, right? Stop trusting your little G gods, start trusting big G God. And yet the reality is there are places where we're not sure we can trust him. And there are places where we, we felt burned by him. Uh, you know, part, one of the things I talk about a lot is, is counseling and that to be a Christian essentially means to be in counseling, that's too far but what I'm trying to say is to be a Christian means to admit your brokenness to admit your brokenness means you need to work in your brokenness I don't know many places, at least one place where you can do that is in counseling uh, if you're interested in that at all I would love to talk more about who in the area might be helpful for you from a Christian perspective but one of the things that happened in the last couple years uh, with my counselor, it was a conversation that actually happened last year and sometimes, you know, there, you have, I have these conversations with my counselor that are sort of, sometimes it's boring. I'm like, what are we going to talk about today? And then sometimes I have like an earth-shattering, life-changing moment. And this was one of those moments. And we were talking about a painful, just a painful event in my past. And he was talking to me about how, here, this kind of combination that why has it been so hard for me to kind of get over or heal from this painful moment in my, in my life? And basically what, what he said to me, I'll never forget. He basically said, Sammy, he said, it's really, really interesting. He said it nicer than this, but I'm just going to kind of put it in a nutshell. He said, Sammy, it's interesting because you're a pastor, and yet you're still so afraid to trust God. And like it cut through me like a knife because here I am preaching every week. God loves you. He's given his son for you. He, How could he show you he loves you any more than he does? Trust him. Obey him. And yet in my own heart, there's, there are places where it's so, so, so hard to trust him. Where it's so hard to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to listen to what you're saying to me here, and I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to enter into things that have been incredibly hurtful in the past. Like life, right? Like relationships. Like pretty much, I mean... This is where Lewis is so right when he says, like, try not to, you know, be vulnerable and you lock your heart up and you end up sort of shriveling and dying because any kind of relationship and anything we're doing in life feels risky. And can we trust God with it? And sometimes we're honest, we're not there yet. We we don't know that we can. And what God is calling us to is he's saying, listen, you can I'm going to be enough, and I think sometimes we, we, we want trusting God to mean that he's going to, he's going to do what we want him to do and not do what we don't want him to do. But that's not the promise. The promise when you begin to trust God, and especially in the areas that are hard for you, isn't that he's going to always do what you want him to do and never do what you don't want him to do. It's that regardless of what happens, what he does or doesn't do, he's there and is enough. In every circumstance, in every place, in every hard place, in every happy place, he's there and he's enough in his presence. So here's the question, kind of positively, is where is it hard for you to trust God? Because typically in the places it's hard for you to trust God, that's where you run to to other gods. Because typically what you and I do, in the places it's hard to trust God, we create a plan for life. where We're going to try to create a plan where we're going to do life in a way where we don't need to trust God in these areas. My question for you is where are you doing that? Where are you afraid that God is not going to be enough for you? And that sort of leads us to Jesus. And this is what the kind of third thing I want you to see. So negatively, positively, but the third thing I want you to see, in some ways the most important thing I want you to see, is how Jesus fulfills and transforms his commandment. Because I don't think, unless you see how Jesus himself relates to the first commandment, you will never trust God. How does he fulfill it? The moment I kept thinking about, I think it's the That the Father always had preeminence, that the Father always had his trust, that the Father always had his heart. And the moment that sort of wraps it all together in one is is in the desert, in the wilderness. When Jesus, if you know his life from the Gospels, Jesus, he's called into his public ministry. And one of the first things that happens, the Gospels say, is he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And if you know the Bible at all, you know it's a significant thing that's happening. Because where did Israel, the people of God, fail God the hardest? Where do they fail to trust God the most? It was in the wilderness. If you were with us last year we we went, we went through Exodus and one of the things we one of the themes of Exodus is instead of trusting and believing and following God in the desert and loving him they they grumbled against him and they didn't trust him and they had hard unbelieving hearts toward him and they first they forsook him. And here's Jesus and if you know the story Satan comes to Jesus and he essentially says okay by the way Jesus is incredibly vulnerable to to going to other gods because here's Jesus and he's in the wilderness and he's tired and he's weary and he's hungry and if you know your own self, you know those are the places where you're the most prone to give in to temptation. And here is Jesus, and Satan kind of tempts him in three ways, if you know how it goes. First, he tempts him with bread. He says, Jesus, you're hungry. Take this bread, eat, and sort of, wor- you know, worship me in this way. And Jesus says, no. The second way he does it, he says, okay, Jesus, I will give you all. I know ultimately the, the end game here is for you to have all the kingdoms in the world. If you worship me right now, I will give you all these kingdoms. So he tempts him first at his level of his desires, he tempts them secondly by saying you can avoid pain and suffering because Jesus knows the cross is coming. He knows the way the Father has is going to involve agony and death and suffering. And then the last one he says, okay, just throw yourself off of this mountain. And God, God says in his word, he'll protect you. And he, what Satan is tempting him there is to use God instead of love God. He te- this is where our gods come from. They come from distorted desires. They come from a distorted view of trying to avoid pain and suffering. They come from a distorted view of God himself where we want to use God instead of love God and serve God. And Jesus says what? It's fascinating. He says God is my bread. God will meet my desires. To the second he says what? He says God will fulfill his purposes for me. God has my future. And the third one he says what? God is enough for me. Loving God is everything to me. How how would I dare use him? And in that way, what is he saying? He's saying God is enough. And in this beautiful way, Jesus, at his his weakest moments, never forsook God. Never, there was no, he never forsook him. Then here's the question. Then why on the cross, if, if Jesus never forsook the Father, why on the cross does Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know if you've, if you've seen one of the movies, one of the best movies I've seen in recent years is, is 12 Years a Slave. And this is a huge spoiler alert. So If you're trying to see this movie, you need to tune out at this point. 12 of Slave is a fascinating movie. It's actually a true historical account of Solomon Northup, who was a free man living in the north. He gets, ca- he gets captured and is sold into slavery in the south. Spends 12 years. It's an agonizing story, just a painful picture of what American slavery was like. It was awful. You need to see it. I mean, one of the most spiritual things you could do is, is go see this movie, honestly. And um, and here he is, and, and he meets finally. as He's kind of coming to the end of his time as a slave. As as a slave. He meets Brad Pitt. He meets this character, Bass. And in the movie, you'll understand, it feels a little self-serving in the movie. But he meets this guy, and you can tell he's different. He's, he's building on a plantation he's working in, and they're having these, he's kind of helping him build this house. And they're having these conversations, and Solomon finally works up the courage, takes everything in him to work up the courage to tell him a story. And he says, as they have very quietly having this conversation, because they know if either of them were to be found out, they would both be definitely punished, if not killed. And he's he asked Brad Pitt's character, Bass, if he will take his letter and send it back to his family and let them know what's happened so they can come and set him free and regain his freedom. And there's this incredible conversation where Bass, Brad Pitt's character, he, you know, Solomon's asking this incredible request, and he says, he says, Listen, what you're asking me is incredibly risky. What you're asking me to do, it not only risks my job and my career, but it actually risks my life forever to be found out what I did. And then this beautiful moment, but he says, But yes, I will do this for you. And he does, and the way the movie goes is, is he gets the letter back to his family, and they come, and they set him free and take him back, and it's, you're crying your eyes out at the end. Like, if you don't cry, you need to be in counseling, because if you, you're not a human being if you don't cry at that moment. But the thing, here's what I love about that. In that small, small picture, what is what is Brad Pitt, what is Bass saying? He's saying, I'm willing to face the consequences of this for you, for your freedom. And I want you to understand at the cross, here's what Jesus is saying in a much more profound way. That Jesus is saying is, I'm willing to be forsaken that you might never be forsaken. I'm willing to face the consequences of the ways that you and I have had other gods before him. And I'm willing to face those consequences and be forsaken by the Father so that you can have the promise that you will never, that God will never leave you or forsake you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that though you and I have had gods before him, Jesus came and he faced the the consequences, he faced the judgment against the ways we've broken that commandment. That the Father might forgive us, that the Father might welcome us and say, even though you've had other gods before me, I will be your God and I will never leave. Though you've forsaken me, do you know yourself? Do you know the ways you've forsaken God? And yet Jesus has forsaken for the ways that you forsaken God, that you might never be forsaken. Now, this is, leads me to my my last sort of thing. Well, what does this have to do with you as a, as a student at USC? What does that have to do with you? Now, and I think there are a couple ways this applies. Uh, the, reality, the, the the big way this applies is we've all had other gods before Him. You know, when we come to the first commandment, we've all broken it. We've all even now we've had we've had and we have other gods. We have. Other things that we run to that we substitute for him. That we that we look to and worship and trust in other than him. And, and just, just a couple that I think are huge for you and, and are huge for us, especially in your time at USC. Just a, th- a couple things that maybe are God's in your lives. Here's, here's the first. Is that some of you worship relationships. You know, we're coming up on Valentine's Day and Valentine's Day is never a clearer picture. I don't know what you're doing on Valentine's Day. The lady and I are going to get some, net, some uh, pizza and watch a little Netflix. There's a little show called House of Cards coming back, season two. It's incredible. This is not sound very romantic, but when you're 10 years married, that's the, kind of, that's the sweet spot right there. And, um, but every year, I mean, it's, it's so clear to me that, that especially where, where you're sitting, Valentine's Day is such a weird time. Because <laughs> you're like, am I going to have a date on Valentine's Day? Or you're like, you've already got it planned down to like the hours, right? Like it goes one way or the other. And both either of those, whether you're like freaking out that you're not anywhere close to a romantic relationship, or whether you're like, you know, in a relationship where you're struggling to to not do things you know you shouldn't be doing, because you know you're not supposed to do them. Either way, here's what we're saying: is that we we you wrestle with making a god of relationships. You wrestle with with thinking that if you're in a relationship and if you have the right kind of relationship, that it's going to fulfill you. Then it's going to make you happy. It's going to make you sort of do like, you know, do like the dance in, uh, in 50 Days of Summer. Is that the right movie? 500 Days of Summer? <laughs> I promise I know that movie. But you know the scene where the Hall at Oates is playing? He's like dancing through this, you know, he's da- Talk about a great movie that gets relationships. That's a fantastic one. Where he's like dancing through the streets. And that's what you and I think. And, and you sort of think like, okay, that's going to be, and so the reality is you've made a God out of relationships. How about another one. of you made a god out of relationship. Some of you made a god out of comfort. The reason it's so hard for you to actually think outside of your friend group is because you're not interested, like God is interested in new or lost people. Why? Because you're comfortable, and you're more interested in being comfortable than you are in being faithful. And you're more interested in actually—I don't know. This is for some of you guys a struggle that you sleep through Sunday morning instead of you know, listening to Hebrews when it says, "Do not forsake the gathering of the saints." Part of that is because you, in a way you love, you love the comfort of comfort more than you love the comfort of the gospel. That comfort is, is your God in a real way. That comfort is something for you that, that, that comes before faithfulness. That comfort is something to you that comes before holiness. What's, just one more. Some of you worship relationships. Some of you worship comfort. But then some of you worship yourselves. That you really do think you are the shiz. That you really do think you're smarter than other people. You really do think that your feelings matter than other people's feelings. You really do think you know more than everyone else knows. Which is why you sort of smugly look down at everyone around you. And which is why you really do secretly think like if things don't go your way, you have like a little toddler meltdown. Like you're my three-year-old at home. Because you can't get over yourself. Why? Because you've made a God of yourself. And that means, here's the danger of that by the way. The danger of that is not even sometimes if that's your story and sometimes if that's your God, not even God can speak into that. Not even God can challenge you from scripture and say, you're wrong. Quit being a little jerk. Quit. <laughs> God wouldn't necessarily do it that way. <laughs> not that he's afraid of doing it that way. But even God can't confront you. Even God can't tell you now. And if that's where you are, you've made a God of yourself. And we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? I mean, that's why John Calvin used to say that we made, like, literally, he said the human heart is like an idol factory. That we can make a God of almost, almost anything. Now, here's the beauty. Because how are you going to stop doing that? How am I going to stop doing that? Here's the beauty is that even though you and I have shown over and over and over that we'll substitute almost anything for Jesus, we'll go to almost anything except Jesus. Here's the beauty of Jesus is Jesus substituted himself in love for you. Jesus substituted himself. And no idol that you ever have, no small God that you ever had, no other G-God, small G-God, will ever do that for you. I love the way we'll close with this. I love the way that uh, there's a guy, William Cooper, who writes some of my favorite hymns. And um, William Cooper has this great hymn called, Oh, For a Closer Walk with God. And here's how he closes it. He says, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be... Help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. And my prayer for me and my prayer for you is that we could take his prayer and make it our prayer this, this week. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you that, you're, uh, that you are forsaken, that we might never be forsaken, that you are the one uh, that is enough for us. And, Lord, you know that that's a lesson that we're never going to get fully and finally until we die. But, Lord, I pray that we would get it more tonight. That wherever it is we're looking to other gods, that you would not only forgive us, but you would call us to repentance. That we would turn away from them, that we would turn to you and find all our hope and find all our trust and our faith and our love and everything that we need. That you are enough for us. Lord, uh, you alone can, can teach us that. You alone can even show us that. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you in that even tonight pray these things in your name. Amen.